0: Everybody and welcome to the next episode of Students Talk Security, put on by the Notre Dame International Security Center. My name is Joey Simone. I'm a sophomore at Notre Dame studying political science and economics. I'm here today with Professor Felipe Fernandez-Armesto. Fernandez-Armesto is an esteemed member of the University of Notre Dame History Department. Born in London to a Spanish father and an English mother, Professor Fernandez-Armesto completed his undergraduate and doctoral education at the University of Oxford. He joined the Notre Dame faculty in 2009, after previously holding positions at the University of Oxford and Tufts University, Professor Fernandez Armesto has authored over 20 books, ranging from The Hispanic History of America to The Legacies of Christopher Columbus and Americo Vespucci. He has also contributed numerous times to news sources such as The New York Times and BBC. Professor Fernandez Armesto has also received many awards, including the Grand Cross of the Order of Alfonso X the, the Wise, which is the highest award for an academic in Spain. Professor, thank you so much for being with me here today. Delighted to be here. All right. So, uh, Professor, I know that you definitely have a history background, and um, a lot of your uh, works have focused a lot on the history of both uh, the world as a whole and the Hispanics histories, in, uh mainly America especially. So I was wondering if you could just give kind of a, a brief overview on this, um, some important things that you think have affected the current world order, like in previous history today, and how that may have affected the Hispanics a little bit as well, if uh, you can do that.
1: Well, it's from all the big Topic, <clears throat> so, but if you want to pick out you know, what's important in the history of the world from a Hispanic point of view, obviously you know, the formation of something that you could reasonably call a Hispanic identity, which is connected, I suppose, with the Romanization of what they called Hispania, the Iberian Peninsula, the creation of a kind of you know, a sense of political allegiance which embraced a, the whole of the peninsula or a large part of it. The struggle to sustain that in the Middle Ages, uh, in, at a time when the peninsula was very divided between rival kingdoms with rival confessional and creedal uh, profiles, the recovery of that unity, at least in a sense of a common dynastic allegiance at the end of the 15th century, and then the projection of this barely, you know, so incoherent Hispanic world which was taking shape in the Iberian Peninsula worldwide in the outgrowth of the Spanish global monarchy, the most widespread and ecologically diverse empire in the whole of history up to that time without precedents previously or parallels in its day. And it was that expansion, phenomenal, hard to explain, Expansion of a very small community worldwide, which created a kind of global Hispanic uh, fellow feeling, which you can sense today in the United States in curious ways. I mean, you know, when I speak English to my fellow residents of the United States, they often don't understand me because, you know, as the listeners, if they're kind enough still to be listening, can tell my English was formed in England and you know, Americans often have to struggle to understand me. But when I speak Spanish in the United States, my fellow Hispanics immediately understand everything that I'm saying, even though they come from a you know, very tradi- different tradition and speak a very different kind of Spanish. It's their willingness to identify as Hispanic that makes them willing to make the effort to understand me. And that, I think, is the proof that this kind of pan-Hispanic identity survives and is kind of surviving, is kind of kicking uh, and struggling to survive in the United States today.
0: It's a really interesting perspective you have on that um in fact, really good, interesting point you made. Uh, my next question, if you don't mind, focuses a little bit more on the United States itself. Uh, I've heard you say uh, in the past you believe the United States is an empire, and um, that's a lot of something that a lot of, I think, current Americans wouldn't necessarily at least think of themselves. Would you mind elaborating on why you believe this?
1: Well, I think of something... Looks like an empire, walks like an empire, and quacks like an empire. It's an empire, <laughs> and, and you can define it how you like. But you know, the United States is a conquest state. You know, it attained its present dimensions by conquering territory from a lot of other people, especially Native Americans and and Mexicans and of course others. Um, latterly, you know, Hawaiians and uh, 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 Colombians and so on. Um, so it's it's uh, it's an empire in the most classic, and it's an empire in the sense also of Encompassing, you know, under a single political allegiance, a lot of different political communities and combining them under a single sovereign entity, combining a lot of communities that either formerly had or potentially ought to have sovereignty of their own. So, in the classic senses of the word, it's an empire. That doesn't mean it's bad, you know, because you can have good empires and bad empires, just as you can have any kind of state can be good uh, or bad. In fact, they're usually a mixture of both, and the United States is clearly a mixture of both. In some ways, it's been a very benign empire. It's been a very effective empire in harnessing the allegiance of all the distinct communities, including all the immigrant communities that have gone to make the country up. It's also been a very benign empire in the sense of On the whole, you know, with many failures and fluctuations, uh, upholding values of uh, democracy and community, uh, which have uh, worked for Americans and have been a sort of beacon for the rest of the world. On the other hand, you know, it's also behaved in ways that are rather less, Laudable, that are also a characteristic of empires: bossing other people around, you know, um, exploiting its minorities, uh, persecuting and dispossessing Native Americans, black slaves, uh, um, uh, Mexicans, um, uh, and um, and you know, all very often um, subjecting immigrant communities to terrible trials and sufferings before accepting them fully in the country. And you know, here we are. It's Talking about this at the University of Notre Dame where, you know, we, we, we all call ourselves Irish you know, no matter where we came from. Of course the Irish experience in America is a very good example of how, you know, immigrant communities have often had to go through that purgation of suffering to become accepted and to make their contributions to the country. And it's also behaved like a bully, you know, in much of the rest of the world. So, you know, it's it's an empire and like other empires, it's a mixture of good empire and bad empire, good cop and bad cop.
0: Yeah, so I think you pretty much you kind of touched on this, but can you kind of elaborate further on how you think the U.S. foreign policy, both today and in the past, has compared with other empires?
1: Oh well, that's a very difficult question because I mean, obviously, foreign policy depends to some extent on you know the immediate circumstances. So that everybody's foreign policy always um, changes. But I suppose you know if you look for the big continuities in American foreign policy. They are um, uh, you know, like those of the foreign policy of all other states, now, ultimately dependent on a calculation of interest. And the foreign policy of the United States, like that of all other modern states, has fundamentally always been a policy of realpolitik. I mean, I guess I'm, I'm guessing that what you would really like me to say is that Mr Trump is an unprecedentedly evil leader whose foreign policy is um, is unprecedentedly wicked unprecedentedly amoral, uh, unprecedentedly self-interest in a very narrow way because in a way, you know, Mr. Trump's foreign policy does seem to be self-serving so it seems to be designed to serve his business interests uh, as much as the interests of the United States as a whole. But in those respects, you know, I mean, I just have to tell you that these are long-standing constants of the foreign policy of elites all over the world and especially in America. If you basically, if you look at the, the 20th Century, the United States, I suppose, has had, you know, three great opportunities to remake the world. One at the end of the First World War, when America was briefly the only global superpower, and they kind of funked it. Another at the end of the Second World War, where it was a little bit more difficult for the United States to to recreate the world in a, you know, juster and 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 um, um, more idealistic. Fashion because um, there was another superpower to confront at the time, which was the Soviet Union. Uh, so that was a failure as well. and then the third opportunity was when the Soviet Union fell. And then I think, you know, the United States had a long sustained period as a unique superpower, which is really only now beginning to come to an end. And it's been a terrible failure. The U- US hasn't used its power, its unique global superpower status, to recreate a more just world order. And part of the reason for that is the tenacity of these traditions of realpolitik and self-interest, which, you know, the U.S. has never kind of managed to fight free of. Indeed, I would say that since the Second World War, corruption has been an ever-growing element in American politics because the Second World War vastly increased the power of the state in the U.S. over the economy and, therefore, the value of government to business. And that's you know the source of the corruption that's been warping American foreign policy ever since. And the way Mr. Trump is blatant and and brazen in his abuse of power in his own interests is really nothing new. And you know the Iraq War was an oil grab, and Mr. Cheney was greatly enriched by the uh, occupation of um, uh, Iraq. And broadly speaking, you know, even when presidents and their cronies have not been lining their own pockets and feathering their own nests, they've been serving the interests of the plutocrats who've patronized them and supported them in their routes to power. And as far as, you know, pursuing America first, American interests is concerned, I'm afraid, you know, that Mr. Trump is pretty typical. Other presidents have often cloaked uh, the ruthlessness of their realpolitik in humanitarian rhetoric. But they pretty much, you know, pursued American interests above all else. And I, as I again, I say that's entirely typical of the modern state. It's not a peculiar American vice; it's a sort of human vice.
0: Thank you. And uh, so, how do you think that these policies have affected minority communities, and I guess Hispanics especially, in the United States or even abroad?
1: Well, I mean, obviously, the 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 way in which foreign policy most um, profoundly uh, and transformatively affects minorities is when a country goes to war because the minorities are the, you know, the cannon fodder, they're the pabulum of battle. In in America's wars um, uh, blacks have played a disproportionate role in the armed services and got proportionately little reward compared with other communities in the past and you know I think the same is is true of uh, of other um, uh, certainly other ethnic minorities I'm not sure that it applies necessarily to religious minorities but I think on the whole ethnic minorities are always you know the in the front rank of battle and they're always the first uh, to die. We I mean, obviously the other way in which foreign policy can affect minorities is when uh, a country picks a quarrel with the home country of a lot of its own immigrants. Uh, For example, in the United States, that happened in the First and Second World Wars, when German Americans had a lot of difficulty very often in adjusting to the um, shift in American foreign policy to a, a stance which became so anti-German that eventually the United States took part in both of those wars um, against the Germans. And something similar is happening. I mean, something similar, of course, happened in the Second World War. Japanese-Americans are a famous case of the you know, uh, interments of Japanese-Americans, many of whom knew nothing about Japan or <laughs> really innocent of any... Uh, um, uh, uh, conflict of allegiance. And something of the same sort is, of course, happening now with um, Mr. Trump's rhetoric about Islam. That's very problematic for Arab and other Islamic Americans and uh, his hostile attitude towards Mexico in particular and many other Spanish-American countries. So that's very problematic for um, Hispanics. And it's a challenge for people to know how to uh, how to respond and how to adjust their feelings and emotions, which are always in conflict in cases of these kinds.
0: So, do you think that uh, such things like the disproportionate advantages to minorities and the kind of uh, special interest that the elites have in empires, do you think those are or that's part of the reasons why Americans today don't like calling America an empire, or generally don't?
1: Oh well, I mean that's a very interesting question, and I, I mean, I, I honestly don't have a, uh, a, a, an answer to that in which I'm very confident. But I, I think if you look at it historically, you can see that. Uh, Americans were generally very happy to call themselves an empire. You know, Madison talked about the, the potentialities of America as a republican empire. Um, the, the New York still calls itself the Empire State, which is a kind of, you know, relic of the days when imperialism was part of the normal rhetoric of American political life. And that was true up until 1917. Uh, nobody in America, I think, seemed to share any sh- sense of shame being an empire. Until then, in 1917, the United States made its last overseas territorial acquisition, which is the Danish Virgin Islands. And at that very moment, uh, President Wilson really shifted the rhetoric uh, of American foreign policy uh, away from imperialism and towards the sponsorship of worldwide Democracy talking about you know, making the world as he said safe for democracy, and from that moment on, you know empire kind of became a dirty word, and President Reagan of course famously excoriated the Soviet Union as what he called the the evil empire Blazing <laughs> ignorant of the fact that you know, the background of American history was at least as imperial uh, as that of uh, of Russia and the Soviet Union, but it became a dirty word in American rhetoric. And I think that's probably the main reason why people shy away from it. It's been a dirty word for a 100 years. Socialist was a dirty word for quite a long time. That's coming back as respectable. Mr. Sanders has tried to make that respectable again. Liberal is another word that, you know, Mr. Reagan turned into a dirty word and that it's so something which some people are quite, still quite proud of calling themselves. So maybe even empire could come back at some point in the future. But at the moment, yeah, it's
0: out. Thank you. So uh, kind of focusing a little bit more on, I guess, the world today, you said in a recent interview that you believe are in a post-American century. Can you elaborate on why you think this is?
1: By the American century, people usually mean the period in which the United States first established its place as a power among the powers, when, you know, brother Jonathan grew up and became the equal of other great powers. And then uh, exercised tremendous cultural influence over the rest of the World, which increasingly in the 20th century has remade itself in in an American image or in American images. Uh, And then, of course, finally ascended to global superpower status. So, those are really the constituents of what we usually mean when we talk about the American century. They're all over, you know, or at least coming to an end. The United States is no longer uh, able to exercise unique hegemony over the rest of the world. Uh, your taxpayers are not willing to pay the price for it. Thank God. And it's very sensible of them not to. Uh, it's iniquitous, you know, that the United States should have done the rest of the world's policing for it at American taxpayers' um, expense. That's not going to happen in future. And in that respect, Mr. Trump's rhetoric, much as I deplore it in most respects, you know, has got quite a lot going for it. Mr. Trump's insistence that America's not going to pick up the bill for the rest of the world in the future is just a reflection of the economic reality. You no longer have the resources that turned America into a great power. You pretty much exhausted, well energy production has gone up recently, but you pretty much exhausted your internal um, resources. You're getting to a demographic Threshold. The United States is no longer going to be able to profit from the uh, huge demographic advantage that the growth of its population gave it in the 19th and early 20th centuries. You know, Other parts of the world are growing much more rapidly. The United States, in terms of population, is you know, kind of cascading down the rankings. Uh, the economy you know, is just not going to be as dominant globally in the future. Uh, as it has been for much of the 20th century. And the military superiority of the United States is also coming to an end. Culturally, the US is still, you know, a very important soft power. But even that, you know, it's going to become increasingly shared in a globalizing world where we're all exchanging culture with each other. And in future, the United States has just got to get used to not being able to boss everybody else around. And we're in the post-American century in the sense that America has now got to find a way of negotiating its continued eminence in a world in which power is shared with other powers.
0: So uh, based on what you just said, I'm assuming you believe the U.S. should not come back and try to regain the global hegemony.
1: No, I think that would be a really stupid thing to do, unnecessarily costly. You know, the way to survive in the world in future is to forge new friendships, new alliances, to cultivate international institutions, um, to be much more open to the rest of the world. Uh, I think the uh, tendency to fall back on protectionism, isolationism, defiance of enemies, picking quarrels with Iranians and Chinese completely pointlessly, I think these are very foolish. Uh, responses to an increasingly difficult and dangerous world, which the United States is going to have to negotiate in future. And I think, you know, reaching out and making friends instead of drawing in and
0: creating enemies is the way to go. Do you think it could come back if it wanted to, or do you think it's just all past?
1: American single superpower hegemony. Well, it could come back if other countries collapse first. <laughs> 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 uh, you know, I, mean, I think um, what, what, are the, what, what are the great powers that the United States is going to have to share with in the future? Obviously, principally China. Well, China could collapse. I mean, I've always maintained since my youth, really, that we're going to revert to what I call the normal state of the world, which is to be dominated by China. But that may not happen because China could collapse, got a lot of internal tensions, a lot of you know, fractures and fissures inside the country and the system, which um, are sources of potential weakness and per- perhaps of um, you know, a kind of fissile implosion kind of, um, e- e- of the country. Um, Russia also you know, is not, um, I mean, I wouldn't back Russia to uh, s- maintain its trajectory back towards superpower status uh, for very long. I think Russia's always a pretty fragile case, always has been in the past whenever it's um really got its act together it's ne- that's never lasted for very long in the past, and perhaps won't last long in the future. The European Union is only an economic rival, and has also God you know we all know what problems the economic u- the European union's got now other places like India and brazil are still a long way. Behind. So the United States, if, if Russia, China played in the European Union doesn't develop, as I presume it won't develop into a rival of, to the United States except economically, there is, there is scope for the United States to reemerge as a single hegemon. But I wouldn't put money on that. I mean, I think the, the overwhelming evidence is that the trend is towards a shared world in which a lot of plural great powers coexist. <gasps>
0: So uh, kind of taking on the, um, the track of looking for the future, uh, you said that you believe America has a Hispanic future. Uh, can you elaborate on that? And do you think that our current activities perhaps around the border will disrupt this? Around the
1: border will do what?
0: Disrupt the uh, Hispanic future.
1: Well, I, I mean, you're talking, when you talk about border troubles at the moment disrupting the Hispanic future of the United States, you're taking a short-term blip and setting it against a long-term trend. And normally, you know, long-term trends survive such blips or they recover from them. So, I mean, I presume that the Hispanization of the United States will continue, uh, that the United States will continue to need the labor of immigrants at different economic levels uh, and will therefore continue to draw on the rest of the Americas for substantial elements of the labor force. I think the influence of uh, Hispanic culture in the United States, food, music, and perhaps to some extent language, I think those trends are irreversible and to be welcome because anything that enriches and diversifies the culture of a country enhances life. So I think in all those respects the United States has a Hispanic future but even more importantly the United States has got to reach out to the rest of the hemisphere not just the Hispanic parts but also probably the Lusophone and Francophone parts and to Canada uh, and the Caribbean Uh, It's got to have a kind of hemispheric policy. It's got to have a pan-American outlook. Because, again, you know, I come back to my point that the ascent of the United States to great power status in the 19th and early 20th centuries was the result of two things, huge demographic explosion in this country and the enormous resources which the conquest of the West of the United States opened up. That's over, you know, I mean... Congress declared, you know, the, the frontier closed in eighteen ninety something and and, and 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 you know a lot of the resources have been um a lot of the mineral resources have been exhausted or are no longer exploitable for ecological reasons and so on. The future of this hemisphere in terms of resources lies in, you know, Canadian sands and the Brazilian forest and the Chilean and Argentinian Antarctic. And if American business wants access to those riches, the United States has got to have a positive foreign policy, and embracing foreign policy towards its neighbors, and the US has got to reconfigure itself as part of the Americas and part of the world, and you know not just to think in terms of America first, you can't think in terms of America first, unless you think in terms of America alongside, within and cooperating with those other contexts.
0: Thank you. It's really an interesting, just I guess, take on how the world, or how America will hopefully be in the world. Well, at Um,
1: least the advantage of a foreigner's objectivity, if nothing
0: else. (laughs) Definitely. So, uh, when I was doing a little bit of uh, research for this podcast, I found something that I thought was very interesting, and I was hoping you could perhaps uh, elaborate on it. Because there are people who live in the Southwest region of the United States. That used to be a part of Mexico and have not moved and have now been adopted into the United States. And, you know, by, I guess, uh, other, like, I guess, majority Americans would be looked at as a minority group or as a perhaps uh, wrongly thought of as an immigrant, even though they haven't moved at all. Can you perhaps elaborate on this problem?
1: Well, I certainly think it's certainly misunderstanding the role of Hispanics in the United States to see them merely as an immigrant community amongst other immigrant communities, because Spanish was spoken in what is now U.S. territory for 100 years before there was a permanent English-speaking colony anywhere on what is now U.S. soil. And the Hispanic contribution to the making of the United States is an absolutely indelible part of the history of the country. And if you look at the culture, if you look at popular culture, if you look at uh, American heroes, if you look at food, if you look at music, uh, if you look at the laws in some parts of the country, especially Louisiana and to some extent Texas and California, if you look at religion, you know, because without Um, the Spanish presence in the United States, Christianity wouldn't have been introduced when it was. If you look at things even as basic as, you know, the the basic um, elements of the uh, early economy of the American West, cattle and horses, they were brought by Spaniards. I mean, can you imagine the American diet about hamburgers or steaks? The ecological contribution as well as the cultural contribution and the demographic contribution of Hispanics to the United States has been absolutely fundamental. And you can't understand America if you only understand it in terms of the traditional picture of a kind of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant society expanding at everybody else's expense from Uh, East to west across the continent. The US flag, the stars and stripes, consists of warp and weft. You know, without those threads that run south to north across the country, the United States wouldn't be what it is any more than the the stars and stripes could, you know, hang together without um, that cross stitching. You need both, you need to understand the, the white Anglo Saxon. Protestant heritage, and you need to understand the heritage of the Hispanics and all the other peoples who have contributed to making the United States what the country is, including Native Americans, black Americans, and all the immigrant communities that followed in the uh, 18th and 19th centuries. Uh, They've all played their part in making the United States what the United States is. And unless you understand that the plurality uh, of the country as the basis of its reality, then you will not be able to embrace the pluralism, which is the only ideology that all Americans can ever have in common, which has to be the basis of coherence and peace in the United States in the future.
0: Thank you, Professor. And uh, while we're kind of on the topic, would you mind just saying, what are your thoughts on the idea of a border wall?
1: Of a border wall? I, my idea uh, of of border wall is is negative i mean I, I the whole thing is it's just a rhetorical device isn't it you know to whip up votes it's completely impractical and even if you could achieve it it would be a ridiculous waste of uh, of money because people would always find ways uh, of circumventing uh, a, 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 any form of of immigration control so um uh, I, yeah, I, it's not even worth the question. It's even <laughs> worth considering is not going to happen.
0: Thank you, Professor. And uh, just one last question, if you wouldn't mind. So recently, we've seen a, a migrant caravan kind of coming up through Mexico and trying to get into the United States. Have we seen anything like this in our uh, in our past, or has there been any country in a similar spot that the United States are that have seen things like it?
1: Well, of course, the um, first illegal immigrants were the. English settlers of Jamestown and the Pilgrim Fathers. And, um, you know, I think um, uh, all the documentation that's inherited from the tradition that they established is of dubious legality, you know, if, you ask, if you ask Native Americans about it. Um, so, of course, yes, uh, you know, there have always been such, uh, such precedents. Um, In recent history, the idea that you can penetrate borders by peaceful marches has definitely been gaining ground. When I was a young man, I was employed by the Spanish government uh, to find documents for a court case before the International Court between Spain and Morocco about the the frontier between those two countries in Spanish, more than Spanish Sahara, and I produced all these documents. <laughs> it was all a complete waste of time because the Moroccans organised this peaceful march of thousands of people across the frontier, and of course, you know, Spain could do nothing about it because um, uh, they didn't think of doing what the Americans had just done and gassing these poor people. <laughs> you just, we've got to let them through. So. Um, <coughs> So that was a, a great song. And I suppose, you know, the, the mass movements that break down the borders of East Germany and brought the Berlin Wall down are another great precedent. Uh, at the moment, it doesn't seem to be working for those guys trying to cross the American, the US border. But that's because the, the US, um, US border guards seem to be extremely ruthless in, in repelling those those people. Uh, so it's not without precedence, but most of the precedents have been rather more encouraging than the experience of the migrants has been. I think it's worth saying that those caravans, I mean people are talking about caravans at the moment, but I think people have always arrived at the border, um, sometimes as individuals, but sometimes in relatively large groups, and we may be seeing a bigger caravan at the moment than previously, but uh, it, it's not entirely unprecedented on the southern border of the United States either.
0: Thank you so much, Professor, and uh, I think that's all we have time for right now. But uh, I wanted to thank you again so much for being here. And thank you to all your listeners who uh, tuned in and listened to what we had to say. Uh, If you'd like to listen to more um, podcasts by the Notre Dame International Security Center, feel free to look at our SoundCloud. You'll hear more students like me and more scholars like Professor Fernandez Armesto uh, talk about the world today. So uh, thank you all again for listening. This was Joey Simone, Professor Felipe Fernandez Armesto. Bester, thank you so much for being here today. Well, many
1: thanks from me. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash NDISC forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag ND underscore ISC. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under SampleSwap.